What's up, everyone? Jackson Fuller here, and you are listening to the third episode of Hog and the Mic. I'll be joined by Andrew Hutchinson momentarily to discuss the past week of Arkansas Razorback sports. And yes, it will be more like the past 10 days of Razorback sports. Apologies in advance for not getting this episode out on Monday this week, but with some heavy snow, uh, terrible roads, uh, some issues from Hutch and some travels from myself. We weren't able to record until today, Wednesday, but honestly, we're kind of thankful. A Monday podcast would have had incredibly depressing vibes. Instead, we get to also discuss Tuesday night's dramatic win over Texas A&M. Where the heck would the Hogs be this season without Tremont Mark? We will also dive into the losses to Florida and Georgia before a little bit of football and baseball talk. As always, thank you guys so much for continuing to listen as we grow this little podcast. So without further ado, here's Hutch and Hog in the Mic. Hutch, uh, how's it going, man? How much sleep have you gotten since last night's uh, three-hour marathon inside Bud Walton Arena? Uh, not a whole lot of sleep. Uh, don't really get to sleep in much these days. Although I will say my four-year-old didn't come and wake me up until 7.30 this morning. So that was much appreciated. Uh, so I did get a few hours of sleep. Uh, it was hard to, even after I was done writing last night, kind of hard to kind of shut things off after such a kind of thrilling victory for Arkansas last night that went down to the last second. So, uh, feel, feeling pretty good though. Yeah, thrilling is uh thrilling is one word for it. Nerve wracking, uh, you know, almost season ending, maybe. Uh I guess that's two words, but it, yeah, I mean, since we last spoke, Arkansas went has gone one and two. Uh, we they beat Texas A and M last night. Of course, they lost to Georgia and Florida on the road. Uh gosh, Tremon Mark just kind of saved their season last night with thirty five points in that game winner. They would have been 0-4 in the SEC. Uh, I think that would have been the first time since 2008-2009 that they started the SEC 0-4. Um, before we dive into any of the specifics of each game, just what are some of your first thoughts that come to mind after the past three games? Where are you with this team? And, you know, maybe how do, how can, I guess, are you just used to the fact now that they can put up such stinkers against, you know, a team like Florida and then bounce back three days later and, and beat a really quality team in Texas A&M. No, not surprised. I mean, that's kind of par for the course for Arkansas across all sports, if we're being honest. I mean, you mentioned that 08-09 season, and I'm pretty sure that was the year Arkansas beat Oklahoma and Texas when they were top 10 teams in the span of a week during non-conference play, and then went like 2-14 and 14 in SEC play. Uh, so the, this is – that – this season was starting to feel very similar to that, you know, because of the early wins against Purdue. Again, I know it was an exhibition, but, uh, and then Duke as well in non-conference play. And then they just kind of, you know, stink the rest of the year. Uh, it was starting to feel a little bit like that. So for them to win, beat Texas A&M kind of, kind of got the season maybe back on track. We'll see if they can actually string together, you know, a win against South Carolina coming up. But I mean, just overall, they've still got a lot of work to do. I know there's some Arkansas fans that are very optimistic that are going to say, oh, well, this is they're, they're doing what they do under Eric Musselman. They're going to flip the switch, and they're going to go on a run and make the NCAA tournament. And I'm like, well, we'll see. They, they've dug themselves quite the big hole. They did jump from 113 to 110 in the net rankings after after that win against Texas A&M. So, I mean, that's a little bit, but 
again, you're not making the NCAA tournament with a 110 net ranking unless you win the SEC tournament. So still a lot of work to do, uh, but it was, again, nice to see them uh, get over the, the get off the schneid and, and, and win a game in the SEC. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the Purdue game. Uh, I, I don't know if I wanted to start here with discussion about Texas A&M, but I'm going to. Um, it was it was crazy. I thought that Mus brought up the Purdue game last night in his press conference because, like you said, I think I think we put a lot into that game. I think fans put a lot into that game, but Musselman has kind of, he hasn't really brought it up too much this season. He has at times, but um, it hasn't been like a constant. Thing that he's you know hearkened back to when trying to talk about this team's potential he brought it up last night after the win and I think that kind of told the story of where Mutz's mindset is right now where because the starting lineup he played last night I believe was the same exact starting lineup he started against Purdue it's the same lineup he started against Duke he gave L. Ellis another chance um, he kind of you know went back to some of the the roots from earlier this season and look, that starting lineup hadn't been great at, earlier in the year, but they had won some games, and they, they beat Duke. Well, I guess Mark didn't even play against Duke, so it wasn't the exact same starting lineup, but but Ellis being involved, um, some very similar things with the rotation. You saw some, you know, he gave Jeremiah Davenport a shot early in the game, and he's done that a couple times recently, and, and Davenport made some threes and, and kind of justified that. I think, in a way... I mentioned this on the last podcast. I think Must is starting to realize maybe maybe there were just too much changes early in the season. That this was a team that needed some stability, especially considering all of the transfers that came in. Um, but he needed to kind of get back to some some things that the team was comfortable with. And look, they only won by one point, and it required a game winning basket with one second left. But they played they played their best game that they have in a long, long time last night. Um, do you think that this is something that must maybe needs to do moving forward can he you know have a little bit of a longer leash with some guys or was this just a one night thing where like he said he wanted some veterans out there and moving forward it still needs to be kind of matchup dependent I think it's probably still going to change but I do think he's not going I don't think he's going to go back to where he's playing you know 10 guys equal minutes in the first half like he's had a couple of times I mean I feel like I mean because battle didn't play at all in in that last night's game so I mean I feel like he's gonna play he's your second leading scorer he's gonna play uh maybe just in the doghouse right now who knows what's going on there must said it wasn't injury based it was a coach's decision so I mean you figure he's gonna play at some point and you know we saw what Layden Blocker and Joseph Pinion did against Georgia I thought they were gonna get at least some decent run in the first half uh Pinion didn't get off the bench and Blocker didn't play until the last minute of the game. So uh, it's very weird. It's very interesting, but Musk does seem to be trying to kind of bring things down into his usual seven or eight guys that are going to play the bulk of the minutes. I'm just wondering if maybe those seven or eight guys might change from game to game, depending on, as you said, matchups or who's got the hot hand or things like that. Yeah. The, the Joseph Pinion decision, I wasn't completely surprised about. I think Musk has kind of shown this over the course of the season that he just there's not a lot of trust there for whatever reason uh, I'm, I'm assuming it's starts with the defensive side of the ball but Joseph just hasn't gotten a real look until the Florida game and yeah he played well but I think that was like must said last night that was kind of a message to the entire team hey if you play hard 
you're going to get consistent minutes no matter when you come in the game. Blocker, it was a surprise that he didn't play last night. But if, if I had to guess, there's a, a fear um, with the Arkansas coaching staff of what that half-court offense looks like with him out there. Because, yeah, he can make some good plays defensively and they can get out and transition when he does. And he's terrific uh, as a guard offensive rebounding and doing some of the hustle plays. But when the game kind of slows down, he's you know he's just not yet the offensive weapon that maybe even L. Ellis can be or or battle who also didn't play last night. And I think he at this point offensively must just feels a little bit more confident with some of the other guards. And I think given what Jeremiah Davenport did last night, uh, I think Musa's decision was, was validated in a lot of ways. And Hey, he threw the freshman on there for a big defensive possession that ended up making a difference when he, he fought hard for a rebound that originally was called Texas A&M ball and the, the referees reversed the call. So, um, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you that I think it's going to continue to change, but I, I don't, I don't think it should. I think like at this point in the season, we've got some, you know, Arkansas has played its best. I think with this group, you know, with L, L when L Ellis is playing well, they're playing their best and he hasn't had a good game coming off the bench ever, you know, this season. So maybe you start him and you hope, you know, Menafield, you bring Menafield off the bench and hopefully Menafield can be the spark when, you know, Ellis just hasn't been able to do that. Um, there's clearly, I think we saw last night, there's a, still a dedication to wanting Menafield to get minutes and, and make an impact, right, Hutch? I mean, he, he played a lot despite foul trouble and being either the sixth or seventh guy off the bench. Yeah, that was crazy. He had like four fouls in nine minutes of action and he got like those two back-to-back fouls where he had to go back to the bench, but then he did. He played the rest of the game when he checked back in, and I can't remember when it was, but he, he didn't come off the floor, and, and they needed that. I mean, especially when Devo got ejected, uh, they needed him out there. And, you know, it, it didn't look good, but they uh, they they were able to pull it out with him on the floor. So, yeah, he's, he's still going to be a viable piece. Uh, maybe not the complete difference maker that maybe we thought he might be after, you know, he had that 30-point game or whatever, and you're thinking, okay, this guy's going to save the season. That was probably a little too much to expect from him, but he is going to be a valuable and, and key piece for them. And uh, as you said, L. Ellis, uh, to, to me, that was probably the biggest surprise of the game. I mean, we can talk about Tremont Mark's 35 points. We can talk about all that kind of stuff. But to me, L. Ellis doing what he did, getting six rebounds, um, I mean, that's, that was crazy uh, because that was probably the thing that was one of the things that was keeping him off the floor is that he couldn't go rebound. I think Musk even called him out at one point for – the lack of rebounding during earlier on. And he had not played very much at all the last several games. I think the last time he had started was how oh, I can't even remember is it's been so long. And not only was he not starting, but he was like playing like three minutes and that was it. So to, for him to not only start, but then play as much as he did was truly probably the biggest surprise to me of, of the game last night. Pretty sure he started last against Abilene Christian, but only played like three minutes and got immediately yanked and then didn't come back in. And uh, and Menafield, I think, played the entire second half of that game, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, that was a surprise. Um, but look, he, he pushed the right buttons there. Um, I think Menafield was playing really well when he was in the game and available. And uh, there were some, there was part of me that was like, man, like it, watching these two guys play, it's, it, it is kind of obvious that Menafield is just like a little bit more consistent, but when he checked out with two fouls left, I thought, I thought Ellis rose to the occasion and he, he scored, I think 
I think 10 points in the second half, something like that. And, you know, he went eight from eight from the free throw line. He was aggressive. And I think that that translated, like you said, defensive rebounding and attacking the basket, because that's something that Arkansas, I think, has lacked this year. And that's why Menefield was such a revelation when he started to play was he was relentlessly getting, you know, going to the hoop or playing fast. And Tremont Mark is is a terrific offensive player, but he he's. He's not as twitchy, maybe, as some of the other guards. He doesn't get to the hoop with ease. It's a lot of craft around the rim. Arkansas needs need someone consistently to get to the paint, and whether that's Menafield, KD, Ellis, Devo, um, we'd love for it to be Trevin Brazil, but that just hasn't uh, manifested itself this year. It, it has to be someone, and last night um, it was it was L- Ellis. Um, is there... Is there anything you specifically think from last night's game that Arkansas can take for like take moving forward and try and replicate like you know I don't know any schematic things or, or rotation wise or what do you think is from the Texas A and M win is something that must can kind of make a, a fixture hopefully going into the South Carolina game and and permanently this season. I think he did learn a little bit about his rotation. You know, I know we talked earlier about how I think he's going to kind of change a little bit from game to game, but you kind of know the the general pieces that are going to be there. And I think now we know, or at least we think we know, that L. Ellis is going to be part of that. I think that was uh, something we really learned. But it's also, I don't know how much schematically and everything, I mean, they, they did look really good offensively in the first half. Maybe you can take something from that, but they also got to the free throw line 40 times, and I just don't think that that's going to happen too often. I hope not. I don't know if I could stand another two hour and 38 minute marathon again, especially if it starts at eight o'clock. So we'll see if if there's anything that they can, they can carry over. And I thought they did at least also in the first half played better defensively. I know Texas A&M is not exactly the uh, best offensive team in the world, uh, but they did uh, defend better. I thought than, than they had been. And uh, if they can, rebound a little bit better you know I know that's been a little bit of an issue at times uh, and A&M's a really good rebounding team uh, but I mean you take out Texas A&M's offensive rebounds or just cut them in half and take away some of those second chance points I think they have like five second chance points then uh, Arkansas wins that game easily and it doesn't even come down to the last second so I think there's some things they can still work on but maybe there's some things they can take uh, but I think the biggest thing is probably you know learning that L. Ellis is, is going to be part of your rotation yeah um, I I'm just going to piggyback off what you said about the first half being really good offensively. And for me, one of the things that they did um, consistently in that first half was they kind of spammed that like little high pick and roll or like a, a pick and pop with the center. They were where, you know, I think must said after the game, it was a byproduct of Texas A&M trapping uh, aggressively and they wanted to get the ball to their five man and create a four on three situation and Chandler Lawson excelled out of that. I think he had four assists last night. Even Makai Mitchell had an assist out of that. I would like to see that more. Whether a team is um, trapping aggressively or just switching or like dropping, I think you have like you have guards that are capable driving the basketball and are fast, athletic SEC point guards. I'd like to see Ellis, KB, Menafield, shoot, maybe even Devo and Tremont like just spam some really, really stretched out high pick and rolls or pick and pops and force the defense to come up and guard away from the basket. And if you can get that four on three situation, 
you clearly you have some big guys that are capable passers that can take advantage of it. I know Muss is an NBA guy and a former Warriors coach. I mean, that's basically how the Warriors won, you know, four titles was that Draymond Green high pick and roll and letting him just carve a defense up. Arkansas doesn't have a, tra- a Draymond Green, but it is a, a strategy I think that they could really implement moving forward is just maybe a little bit more simple pick and rolls and because it feels like to me too much this season they're trying to get the ball to the high post um but when they do it's still the paint is packed and that's not necessarily a recipe for success all the time uh real quick touch first half arkansas 53 percent from the field 50 percent from three Second half, they were 24% from the field and 22% from three. That The second half is exactly why this team has struggled all season. Uh, I, it's just, I mean, you cannot make six field goals in, in 20 minutes of basketball and expect to win. And I know they blew a big lead and, you know, they played really well in the first half, but in a lot of ways they were almost lucky to win that game last night based off how poorly they played offensively in the second half. And like what you said, the offensive rebounds they gave up. I imagine at this point in the season, we're just going to have to live with those offensive rebounds because Arkansas is not a good defensive rebounding team. Yeah, that second half was uh, was brutal offensively. As you said, I mean, it was very very much more similar to the the offense that we've come to expect out of this Arkansas team, unfortunately. Uh, I, maybe it was something with that end of the floor because, I mean, A&M's first half was atrocious too, and – I think A&M started 1 of 11 on that goal, and I think Arkansas started 1 of 12 in the second half on the same goal. So maybe it was something to do with the goal. I don't know, but uh, but it's probably more just Arkansas being what they've been. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe they can take something from that pick-and-roll stuff that you were just talking about because that is something Eric Musman will do is if he figures out what's working, he will go to it all the time. Now, I remember his first year here when they had Mason Jones, they had a play – I cannot for the life of me remember what the name of the play was because Muss has talked about it all the time, but they ran the heck out of it almost every single play. And that's why Mason Jones was a co-SEC player of the year that year is because they just they figured out what was working and they stuck with it and they did it and it was effective. And who knows, if COVID doesn't hit, maybe they make a run in the SEC tournament and get in the NCAA tournament because they were playing really well at the ends with that play. So that maybe if he if he figures out and he likes that, then uh, they will spam it, like you were saying. They will do that if it's if it's working. Interesting. I hope they do. I'm going to ask Musk about that uh, whenever we get him before the uh, South Carolina game this week. And if I don't, uh, maybe you can or you can remind me too. Just what if that's if that was something that was strictly a Texas A&M thing, or maybe they can find success with that moving forward. And who knows if he gives me an honest answer? Although for the most part, he does. So uh, shout out to Musk for his for his honesty. Um, Let's see here. I mean, I think that, that a lot has changed and a lot hasn't changed since the Florida game. I'll be honest with you, Hutch, and with all the listeners. I did not watch a single second. I was uh, on a bachelor party in North Carolina and uh, was just kind of keeping up with it from afar. It looked pretty bad from afar. Uh, I don't think they were ever really in the game. Uh, you know, what were kind of what happened in the UF game? Walk me through, you know, what led to I thought they played 
decent at times against Georgia and found some life in the second half. And then none of that obviously carried over to Gainesville. Uh, what, what went wrong for Arkansas against Florida? Well, Florida, they, well, they couldn't defend Florida early on, to be quite honest. I mean, it was a lot of the same issues that Florida was getting to the rim at will. Uh, they could score really easily. They built, I think they had like a 22 to two run very early on and kind of put the game away. But then about midway through the first half, something crazy happens. Uh, Eric Musselman implemented a zone. Probably the first time he's, I mean, he said it was the first time he's ever done that in college as a college head coach. And he has talked in the past. I mean, you don't know this, Jax, because you haven't been here. But like, we've asked Muss in the past, like about running a zone. And he basically like scoffs at the idea. He's like, I'm a man-to-man coach. That's what we're going to run. It's what we're always going to run. Well, they went to a zone and lo and behold, they actually went on a little mini run there at the near the end of the first half. They cut it to a more manageable you know, deficit. I think at one point they got it within nine. Uh, but then, uh, you know, they also put in Layden Blocker and Joseph Pinion. Uh, but then, um, you know, they, they just, they didn't have enough. I mean, they, they, it was, it was good for a little bit, but then I think Eric Musman said after the game, like, Hey, whether it's a zone or a man, you've still got to defend your zone or defend your man. And Arkansas still wasn't doing that. That's what led to the 22 point loss. And, uh, it made me wonder, like maybe they'll do something. Maybe they'll play Pinion and, and Blocker a little bit moving forward, or maybe they'll uh, implement mix in a little bit of zone here and there just to keep teams off their off their uh, you know feet or whatever on their toes. Um, but I don't think I don't I don't remember that happening at all uh, against Texas A&M. So I don't know how much you could really learn from. I think maybe the biggest takeaway, as Must said after the game, was that you know Blocker and Pinion's play was kind of a message to the other guys like, Hey, you better be on your game or you're going to lose your minutes. And I think that maybe it's probably going to be the lasting effect from that game. If there is one, you know, to take away moving forward. Interesting. Um, I think those, those two game road trips in the, in conference play and, most of the times teams will come back before they go. I mean, must told us though, that they stayed away from Fayetteville and, and went to Gainesville. I mean, those are tough. A lot of times when you lose that first game uh, and you kind of like, you kind of want to get back home after a road loss to try and get some good vibes and some confidence going, um, you know, from where my vantage point, it felt like they just, they just needed to get home. They needed to kind of get back in front of their home fans and, and, really maybe get back to work and practice in a comfortable environment coming out of the Georgia game. And of course they couldn't do that. They had to focus and get ready for Florida. The Georgia game I did watch and wrote about and looking back on it this week and before last night's game, I actually was, I I found myself thinking, wow, Arkansas didn't really play that bad. Like there was a five minute stretch in the first half where I think Georgia out physical them, made some threes. Um, you know, there was some sloppy turnovers that turned into Georgia threes and all of a sudden Georgia was up 10. And then from that point forward, the game kind of hovered at that 10 point mark the entire time. Arkansas, of course, got it close and then, you know, Georgia answered back. But that, that there was really only a three, five minute stretch. I think that proved to be the difference in that game, despite the, the 10 point um, disparity. Are you as optimistic as me about the Georgia performance, or do you kind of go the other way, which I was feeling uh, coming immediately coming out of that game, where it's like this Georgia team. I know they're off to a good start, but that's that's a winnable road SEC game, and Arkansas just simply did not get it done. Yeah, I mean the fact that they you you mentioned they got down by ten, but then hovered around there. I mean they showed some fight, and you know you don't want to get too much of a you know moral victory or anything like that, but. 
considering what they had just done the previous game against Auburn, where they literally quit. Like, I mean, Keon Minifield after the game admitted they quit. To see them fight on the road against a what seems to be a pretty good Georgia team that had, I think they had Tennessee on the ropes a couple of games ago. Uh, so that's a that's a good team apparently, and uh, they they really they fought. They didn't just roll over and lose. They could have lost much by much more than ten points. Uh, and so that to me that was encouraging. Uh, that may be like a little bit of a homer take or whatever, but it was encouraging and gave me hope going into the Florida game. And then, of course, they go and lose by 22, and it was never really that close. You're like, okay, well, what's going on here? It just seems to be kind of a an up-and-down team. But, uh, yeah, I think that the Georgia t- the performance against Georgia was easily their second-best performance of SEC play so far behind the, the A&M game last night. Yeah. Um, real quick, a couple things, and then we'll, sh- we'll shift focus here. Um, Musselman's press conference last night, We I've talked about it a little bit. Um, he said some very interesting things, but I didn't really sense a lot of optimism and I like uh, coming out of even in the ups and downs of the season so far, when they have won games, he's been pretty upbeat and happy, albeit I think maybe Lipscomb aside, uh, but he's, he's had some optimism, um, I didn't sense that. Of course, his voice was a little hoarse from yelling and celebrating after the big win, but I, there, there were. I think there were still a lot of like concerns he was trying to echo in that press conference. Do you do you agree with that? Do you think maybe I'm I'm over over analyzing his uh, his hoarse voice and uh, you know what do you think Musselman is kind? Where is he at with this team right now? Because there are lots and lots of frustrations. But obviously, like he mentioned the Purdue game, he mentioned the Duke game. There is. There is some hope deep down in there. Yeah, I think you're probably spot on there. I mean, he he didn't he sounded more relieved in my opinion than he was excited or pumped up. You know, he in the past, you know, he he has been very happy after any SEC win because you know he talks about how hard it is to win in conference and all that kind of stuff. And last night it was it was much more not quite as extreme, but very similar to those Lipscomb vibes post game, uh, where it was a game they won but they nearly squandered. Uh, I think that's kind of what he felt, and uh, I think this this team is giving him some gray hairs a little bit. Um, it's stressing him out, but as you said, I mean he he knows what their potential is because he saw it against Purdue, against Duke, you know, and even uh, they they were competitive against Memphis in the Bahamas, and uh, you know they were competitive for a half against North Carolina. So I mean they they've been they've had moments where you're like, okay, this team is is potentially going to, you know, as an NCAA tournament team, but then they go out and they look terrible against Auburn or whoever they lose to, to Greensboro early on. So uh, I think he's still trying to figure this out. I don't, I didn't get the sense last night that this was the, Oh my gosh, they've gotten over the hump. They've turned the corner and now they're going to go on a run. I think Eric Musselman knows that there is more work to do uh, that they've, they've got more things they've got to improve on before he gets confident. We're like, okay, this team's rolling. We're going to make a run. We're going to win, you know, 12 of 14 games and, and make a, make a run in the NCAA tournament. I don't think he's quite there yet. Yeah, I agree. Um, and you kind of mentioned their close, their close calls and who they've lost to just as a reminder for everyone, they've got seven losses this year. Here are four of them. Number three, North Carolina, number 11, Auburn, number 12, Memphis, and number 16, Oklahoma. I mean, not many teams are going to beat those those four teams this year. 
That's what makes the UNC Greensboro home loss and losing both of those SEC road games so crucial to me. I mean, I think if you beat, if Arkansas had beaten UNC Greensboro and just split on the road in the SEC, they might be an on-the-bubble team right now, even with all the inconsistency. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to have expected them to to beat UNC Greensboro, of course, but then to have probably gotten that Georgia game under their belt. Of course, unable to win any of those three games, so we're all type we're all talking in, in hypotheticals here. But I do think that there's a part of a part of me, a part of the fan base, a part of the coaching staff and players that at, at sometimes maybe this season have been a little bit too down on the team, just considering they've lost to some really, really high quality competition. Um, but they're gonna they're gonna there's no more excuses at this point. Like you gotta beat the highest quality of competition left on your schedule and that brings me to my final question for you Hutch about this basketball team uh before we move on they you know I don't think we need to rehash our predictions of whether they make the NCAA tournament or not but I've got a different version of that question how many games do you think they have to win to make the NCAA tournament now they're 10 and 7 1 and 3 in the SEC and there are 14 SEC games left how many do you think they've got to win to make the tournament Definitely a higher number than last year. I think they made the NCAA tournament last year as an eight or a nine seed with an eight and ten conference record, uh, but that was because they had a really good non-conference slate. Uh, I think I've I've said all along that I feel like they might need to go ten and eight just to to get to the NCAA tournament. That would give them what nineteen regular season wins, and you might need to win a game in the SEC tournament as well. Uh, but I mean, you're you've been ranked 100 or worse worse most of the time in the net rankings and that's that means something and they they haven't really been lighting the world on fire in other metrics either i don't know where they are at ken palm uh, right now after the game i think they're like 89th going into the game uh so they're none of the metrics like arkansas uh i mean as you said they they did lose to some really good teams but i think this the the greensboro loss all that kind of stuff that that really puts them in a bind you're gonna have to win some games so I mean they've they've won one and lost three, so you got to win another nine at least of the last fourteen. That's nine and five, doable. It's going to be tough, but uh, that's probably what you got to do. And if you win anything less than that, then you probably got to make a run. You know, maybe at least the SEC championship game just to to give yourself a chance. Uh, yeah, and I think it might it might be interesting who they beat could also play a part. Like, I think they could, there's a chance, like, I mean, they've got Kentucky twice, Tennessee, Ole Miss left on the schedule. You know, that's going to be four ranked games. I imagine maybe some of the other SEC teams could get ranked by the time they play Arkansas. Like, maybe you can get in the tournament if you win nine games, but you win two, you know, of the Kentucky and Tennessee games. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's probably 10 and eight, maybe even 11 and seven is the bare minimum just because of those losses to UNC Greensboro and now Georgia and Florida who Florida maybe, but, and well, I guess both of those teams are potential tournament teams, but I don't think all three of Georgia, Florida and Arkansas are making the tournament this year. Uh, big power five basketball usually has a way of working itself out, uh, by the end with, uh, with the tiers and everybody who makes the tournament kind of, kind of making sense, but you never know. Maybe all three of those teams go on a big run here and, and, uh, I'm completely wrong about that. So, uh, let's, let's move over to football real quickly. And, uh, we did have some relatively big news on, uh, for Sam Pittman's squad 
Since we last spoke, I know it was a long time ago, but Arkansas announced Ronnie Fouch as its new wide receivers coach, replacing Kenny Guyton. Uh, Fouch was a co-offensive coordinator at Missouri State and worked under Bobby Petrino with the Bears and previously at Louisville. Uh, just touch overall thoughts on the hire. What do you make of, of Fouch? Uh, not too much information for, of him out there, but uh, seems like potentially an, an up-and-comer that, that Arkansas uh, was able to snatch before some of the other big bad sec schools might might have been able yeah, this to. is his first full-time fbs job i know he'd work for bobby trino at louisville as a either a ga or quality control something like that but this is his first time being an on-field coach at the at the fbs level he hadn't even worked at a group of five school before so that's a, it's a big deal for him uh he has worked with bobby petrino before so i think that was probably the big selling point is that they were able to you know have that history and and petrino knows what he's getting uh, he probably knows what Petrino's offense is like, so I think that's probably encouraging. Uh, to me, maybe the most interesting part of the hire, and I wrote about this as whenever I when he first got announced and I got my hands on his contract, not only is he the lowest-paid assistant coach on the staff, which, again, makes sense considering he wasn't an ex- experienced FBS assistant coach. It kind of reminded me of Michael Scherer uh, when he came over here to be the linebackers coach from Missouri. He had been a GA and quality control coach for the Tigers, uh, he made, I think, even less than what uh, Fouch is making right now. And he turned out to be pretty good. Now he's defensive coordinator at UNLV and, and seems to be a, a, a nice up-and-comer right there. So maybe you got something similar. Uh, you know, he was friends and, and know, knew very, very well but, uh, Barry Odom, the defensive coordinator. So very similar to that. But in his contract, it does stipulate it's a two, it's a one-year deal with a second year if Sam Pittman is the head coach. I think that's a pretty big if to include in a contract there because that's the first time Arkansas has acknowledged maybe Pittman won't be the head coach in 2025. Uh, to me, that that says a lot. I mean, it's it's smart on their part because it gets you out of having to pay a buyout if you know they do make a change because then you got to pay the buyouts not only of Sam Pittman but the assistant coaches. Well, now you're not on the hook for him if you do decide to make a change, but if you're that confident in Sam Pittman being your guy, which is what kind of the message Arkansas is trying to send, I think, uh, why would you have to include that in his contract? To me, that was very, very interesting. And, uh, you know, it's there wasn't something included in Petrino's contract. It wasn't something included in Eric Mateos's contract. So, and they probably had a little bit more leverage with him being an inexperienced guy coming from the FCS ranks. But to me, that was maybe the more interesting part of, of this hire. Because, again, it's a wide receivers coach. What are, what are you going to know? I mean, maybe he'll be a good recruiter. Who knows? But that to me, that was that was very interesting. Yeah, I think you nailed it with the leverage part of Petrino and Mateos. Um, I found it very interesting uh, on a different angle in that I think this is a Petrino guy, not a Sam, not necessarily a Sam Pittman guy. I mean, I'm sure Sam Pittman approved the hire and was happy with it, but he's got the connections to Petrino. And this being in his concert, this clause being in his contract kind of makes me think if Sam Pittman's not the answer, the pipe dream that some Arkansas fans have of Petrino getting the head coach job can be put to bed. I think, you know, Hunt Yurichek has come out and said that, you know, Petrino is not necessarily a head coaching candidate. And I think in an interview with, with Hogs Plus, maybe or something like that, I, I'll need to go back and, and research that. So please don't. Uh, journalistically credit me any of the listeners uh, I didn't get my facts there at all 100% accurate but I know you know this was a Petrino hire and to put that stipulation there tells me that 
not only is this like a, a very one year trial run for Sam, but if it doesn't work out for Sam, it probably isn't working out for Bobby long term here at the University of Arkansas. That that they are kind of on the they're, you know they're obviously on the same team, but their their success and their failures are going to be very much linked together this year. I can't imagine a scenario where Sam Pittman fails and Bobby Petrina does well enough where he has a, a an argument to, to stay after, uh, past Sam Pittman. So, but hopefully none of that matters. Hopefully it works out this year and, and Sam's Sam's back in, in 2025 and Arkansas maybe has it back to where things were just a couple of years ago. Um, and I will say that I think it is interesting as far as Fouch is concerned that they did go the, with an inexperienced guy. I mean, Arkansas, not not a great season last year, hasn't had a whole lot of success in recent years. It's a SEC football job. I imagine they could have had a, a bigger talent pool to uh, to search from for a wide receivers coach, and, and they went with maybe an inexperienced guy. That tells me probably two things. Either Petrino and Pittman are really, really high on this guy as an up-and-comer, or potentially there are some, some financial aspects of this hire that uh, the fans don't necessarily want to hear about. Um, I, th- I know how it's going to be spun by, by Arkansas, that this is a Petrino up-and-coming guy, and probably that, that's probably the correct answer. But it doesn't hurt that you know they were able to have the leverage to put that clause in and maybe pay him less than, than uh, some of the other wide receiver coaches in the yeah, SEC. Yeah, they did give – they are paying more for an offensive coordinator this year with Bobby Petrino, make, paying him I think $1.5 They were paying uh, Enos like $1.1. I think he's going to get a bump to like one point. 175 or something like that so you are paying more overall for your salary pool uh but it does save you a little bit of money there and uh and i will say on, on sam Pittman's behalf like yo this this is what he does is he generally lets his coordinators have some freedom to hire assistant coaches uh, i mean you look at uh kenny guyton himself i mean the reason he was here is because he had a connection to kendall bryles and that was what led him to him getting hired uh, when he hired barry odom as his defensive coordinator a lot of those defensive coaches were Barry Odom guys. I mean, he brought over uh, Sam Carter was a defensive bass coach. Michael Scher, as I said earlier, linebackers coach. Uh, I mean, he even brought his his offensive line coach Brad Davis, who also had a Sam Pittman connection, so that helped as well. But you know, the connections thing is is very big for for Sam Pittman and big and across college football when it comes to assistant coaches. I mean, Cody Kennedy was hired because he was a GA for Pittman at Georgia. Eric Mateos was hired because he's a GA for Pittman at Arkansas. So that's kind of how these things go. And that's how it's easy, somewhat, he's sometimes easy to kind of identify who maybe the candidates are just because, hey, this guy worked for him in the past and they've got in history. And that's how, you know, Fouch, he worked for Petrino at Louisville, again, at Missouri State. So it kind of made a made sense for him to, to go after a guy that he was familiar with. Man, we could have a whole other podcast on coaches hiring their friends because sometimes I look at that like, what are we doing? Like, I mean, like in Arkansas's point of view, I'm not saying any of these hires are not going to work out, but I mean, Arkansas hasn't really experienced that much success with Coach Pittman. At one incredible year, one okay year, and a couple of bad years, you know, sprinkled in between. Does it make sense to kind of hire your boys when when you're when you're not having the most success? I don't know. Everybody in college football does it, so uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm the idiot there. But uh, all right, let's move on to baseball just real quick. Uh, D1 baseball released its preseason top twenty-five. Of course, I think D1 baseball 
widely regarded as one of the best national outlets for college baseball country or college baseball coverage. And, uh, just I, I respect their opinion on a lot of things when they write something I listen and Arkansas is number three in the country behind Florida and Wake Forest. Uh, seems like the Cogs are going to be a consensus top five team across all the polls, but uh, D1 Baseball called them the best pitching staff in the entire country, um, specifically their starting pitching staff and the options that they have coming out of the bullpen uh, with just a plethora of guys that, that throw heat from both sides. Uh, Number three in the country, Hutch, uh, after number two from Perfect Game. I, I asked you if it was kind of ho-hum then. I'm not going to ask the same question, but I am going to. I am wondering, like, do we, are we, are we maybe overvaluing this team just a little bit, given you know last year's disappointment in the in the uh, regional, and or does this does it feel right to you how high they yeah, are i think it feels right and i mean you mentioned the disappointing you know finish to the end the season last year in the regional but and i think that's how a lot of fans would would talk about it just because they've come to expect a certain level of success in the postseason uh but they still won the sec regular season i mean it's, they won the, the conference that produced the national champion and that that says something right there i mean uh they were really really good they have been probably I mean, if you look at it statistically, probably the most dominant, consistently dominant program in the SEC, the college baseball's most dominant conference uh, since 2017, probably. I mean, that's a more than half a decade. They have been the most dominant program. All they they just don't have a national title. And, you know, we've seen, you know, both of the Mississippi schools get their first national titles. Uh, LSU won it last year. So, I mean, Arkansas fans are kind of getting a little antsy, but I think the number three ranking is totally fair and accurate. And I agree with their assessment that they've got an incredible pitching staff. They've got an incredible starting rotation with Hagan Smith, Brady Tiger, Mason Molina. Uh, I've been writing about those guys the last couple of weeks, and I think they're going to be really, really good. I know D1 Baseball also ranked like the top freshman classes in the country, and Arkansas has the top number one freshman class in the country. And a lot of the big reason that's because a couple of pitchers they have, Gabe Gackle uh, and uh, Hunter Dietz. I mean, those dudes are, are legit. And, you know, on, a, on any other team, they might be competing for a spot in the starting rotation. On previous Arkansas teams, they might be competing for a start, spot in the starting rotation. But now they're just going to be key bullpen guys and maybe a midweek starter. Uh, so I think that's that's huge. And they've got all sorts of depth. They've got you know guys in the, the field and everything. You've got lots of different options there, even if you have some injuries. So to me, it looks like a top five team that should be in the thick of things come June. Yeah, I said last week a little concerned about their hitting. Uh, D1 Baseball kind of mentioned some of those concerns in their assessment. Just they've got some transfers and uh, just some guys that haven't shown that they can consistently hit SEC pitching that have the potential to do that but have just haven't done it yet in a long-term college baseball season. Uh, I know Dave Van Horn's pretty confident that they're going to be able to hit the baseball this year. And, uh, hey, no better training uh, for an offense than going up against the best pitching staff in America all offseason. So um, a lot of excitement. I can't wait for the season to start. And, man, it's just going to be fun if, uh, you know, knock on wood, hopefully uh, the three starting pitchers over the week, the weekend starters stay healthy this year because Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you're going to be able to watch a lot of a lot of talent uh, come through the the mound uh, at Fayetteville this season. So, all right, I think that's a, enough for baseball talk. Of course, we'll have plenty plenty more um, as we ramp up towards the spring. 
uh, time to close things up with what the hog, our weekly segment each week, each obviously uh, where I share the craziest thing I've seen from Arkansas Twitter. Hutch on Wednesday of last week, Nick Saban announced his retirement from Alabama. And I'm just going to read two tweets I saw from Arkansas fans immediately after. And when I say immediately after, I mean minutes after Nick Saban's retirement. I'm not going to shout out these guys' uh, accounts just because I don't know them and I feel like that would be mean. But from a Dusty, is there a chance that a lot of Bammer players all hit the portal and come to the Hogs now? Question mark. LOL. From a Mitch, the minute Bama falls off Arkansas's schedule, they become an 8-4 and four program. Just watch. Man. <laughs> guys, it's Alabama. It's Alabama, and I know it's Nick Saban, but uh, that's a lot of uh, digging the grave for a history, tradition, rich program, and uh, a lot of funny way of making one of the greatest college football, probably the greatest college football coach of all times, retirement about your program that's coming off a four and eight season. So I found that found that very funny. Uh, Hutch, what do you make of that? And just overall, what do you you know? You've covered the SEC for a long time. What were your initial reactions to Nick Saban? Well, that reaction doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, Nick Saban has owned Arkansas. He went seventeen and zero against Arkansas as the Alabama head coach. He did lose a couple of times, I think, at, when he was at LSU. You know, the last the last, here's a trivia question for you, a trivia answer. The last quarterback to beat last Arkansas quarterback to beat Nick Saban was Matt Jones with the miracle on Markham. I'm pretty sure in two thousand. Who I want to say, y'all can correct me on that if I'm wrong, but uh, it's been a long, long time since Arkansas has beaten Nick Saban, and uh, you know Arkansas did get Drew Sanders, and he was an All-American from Alabama, and so now every time an Alabama player enters the transfer portal, whether he's a starter or backup or fifth stringer, Arkansas fans are going to be calling for, hey, let's let's get him. He's at Alabama. He must be good, which is probably true, but you're not always going to get a Drew Sanders, and also those players aren't always going to consider you. I mean, I've seen where a couple of those Alabama guys have transferred now to, to Texas, you know, which again, just in the college football playoff, uh, they're going to these programs that, you know, are like Alabama. They're, they're probably not going to transfer to a four and eight program like Arkansas, unfortunately, you know, look at Drew Sanders. I mean, he transferred to a program coming off a nine win season, you know, it's a little bit different right now. And maybe you get the ball rolling and can, you know, get some Alabama guys in future cycles, but uh, yeah, and then plus, you know, Alabama's still going to be Alabama, I think. I mean, I think Kalen DeBoer, uh, he's a tremendous coach. You know, he's won everywhere he's been. He was had a ridiculous win-loss record at the NAI level, you know, then worked his way up through the coordinator ranks and head coach and just took Washington of all schools, which a good, solid, you know, football program, good, solid football history, but not – your traditional powerhouse and took them to a national championship game. So I think that tells you right there, he's a great coach and give him the resources of Alabama. And he's probably going to have a lot of success there at Alabama. Will it be Nick Saban level? Probably not because Nick Saban's the greatest of all time. Uh, but he should still win a lot. Definitely. And look, this is, this is what I'll say. I think Alabama under Nick Saban was terrifying, but there's a world where Alabama with an offensive minded guru is not just as terrifying, but still one of the scariest programs in the country for all that Nick Saban has done in Alabama. They won games with, with defense and just, you know, out recruiting the rest of the country. And there were 
times sprinkled in where they had the elite, elite offenses, but for the most part, they controlled the line of scrimmage and ran the football. Kalen DeBoer is, he's shown wherever he's gone, he's going to put up major points and be innovative and have a just kind of crazy scheme. If he can somehow maintain the kind of recruiting, you know, or come close to that recruiting and get those kinds of athletes to Alabama, you're going to see, you know, the defense might take a step back, but you're going to see a very innovative offense down there in Tuscaloosa. And that's something we haven't seen in a while. And, and that I think should, uh, you know, SEC fans can, can be happy that Nick Saban is gone, but I, I love, I love the hire. I think it's, you know, it's going to be tough to replace Saban, but Alabama did as good of a job as they could have uh, finding that replacement. So, uh, all right. I think that's it. Uh, f- nearly 50 minutes today. Uh, we've been a little uh, all over the place with our timing, but we're going to try and keep it under an hour for every episode. And this was another fun one. Hutch, uh, thanks so much. You know, as always, tell the listeners where they can find you on, on social media, where they can read your work and, and maybe shout out uh, one of your pieces that, that you did coming out of the uh, Texas A&M. Yeah, so you night. can follow me on Twitter at NWA Hutch. Uh, then you can also find all of my work at bestofarkansasports.com. Again, no paywall, everything free, including my story from the Texas A&M game where I kind of zeroed in on some interesting decisions by Buzz Williams. We didn't really discuss it here on the podcast, but uh, Buzz did make some interesting decisions there in the final seven seconds that really helped Arkansas, uh, which, you know, it's always it's always good when you're an Arkansas fan that you can, you know, comment on the opposing coaches uh decision making than than your own so uh yeah you can go check that out at best of awesome and everyone can find me on twitter at jackson fuller 16 read my stuff at swtimes.com uh last night i wrote a lot i wrote about l ellis and uh his his revival his return to the starting lineup but also just kind of why he's such a uh, an example of the, the Arkansas struggles this season. They're unable to kind of find consistency from anyone on the roster, really, other than Tremont Mark. And Ellis is a perfect example of that. Hopefully, we're moving towards uh, a better place with this team, and uh, some of those guys start to find their way as the SEC picks up. And Arkansas continues its SEC schedule on uh, Saturday against South Carolina. We will be back with our fourth episode of Hog in the Mic Monday, January 2022. And we'll be recapping that game against the Gamecocks and looking forward to a very, very big road game against Ole Miss uh, right around the corner. So, Hutch, as always, thanks for joining me. I'll see you Saturday. And thank you all. Thank you to all the listeners for, for tuning in every week. We really appreciate it.